Hello, this is Pastor Trent. I want to welcome you to the Mountain Home Church, the Nazarene Sermon Podcast. We are thrilled that you are tuning in to hear sermons from our ministries here at our church. It is our hope that the Spirit of Christ would be present with you as you listen today. I do want to take just a moment to invite you to reach out and connect with us. On our website, we have a way for you to do just that. You can visit www.mhnazarene.org slash connect and fill out a very brief form. There's a spot to leave contact info, ask questions, and even to request prayer. Also, be sure to indicate that you listen to us through our SoundCloud podcast to let us know where you're listening. May the Lord be with you this day. Grace and peace to you. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, as we uh, as we turn to the Word today, um, uh, we'll be turning back to the book of Jeremiah, where we were uh, last week. We led last week. We read from. Um, Jeremiah 8, and just to, to kind of give us some context and, and to refresh our brains about, about the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah prophesied to the southern kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah, um, and, and during his time as prophet to the nation of Israel, um, an enemy was coming. Big bad Babylon was on its way, uh, and and Jerusalem was a part of of Judah and was caught in the middle, and and the ultimate destruction of Jerusalem and the and the the imposition brought on by the the kingdom of Babylon was due to their disobedience and their walking away from God, um, and, and the passage last week was was very much a lament, asking where in the world. Was God today is a today is a different kind of story. Today is a, a different kind of story. We learn from chapter thirty six that, that Jeremiah had asked Baruch, uh, a scribe, to kind of compile all these different prophecies that he had had and the stories of his life, um, and so he he composed this anthology of all these different writings. Um, and today is a great example of that because uh, this is definitely not a prophecy. This is kind of a story about Jeremiah's life that we're going to be turning to. Um, and so if you want to turn to chapter 32, that's where we'll be reading from today, Jeremiah chapter 32, if you have your Bibles or if you have a device that points that direction. I also want to acknowledge that this is the final Sunday of the month, so this is Family Sunday, so we have our kids, K through 6, in with us. So if you hear some rustling of pages and, and some extra noises um, in our sanctuary today, isn't that just a joy? Um, so we welcome them today as they, as they join us. Um, today, as we turn to Jeremiah chapter 32, um, I'll be reading um, verses 1 and 2, and after that I'll skip down to verse 16 or 6 and read through the verse 15. So Jeremiah chapter 32, starting in verse 1 and reading 1 and 2, and then we'll skip down to verse 6 as the lectionary um, guides us to do. Um, for those who are willing and able, out of reverence for the reading of God's word, would you please stand as we read together from Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah received the Lord's word in the 10th year of Judah's king Zedekiah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar's rule. At that time, the army of the Babylonian king had surrounded Jerusalem, and the prophet Jeremiah was confined to the prison quarters in the palace of Judah's king. 
That's the end of verse 2. Skip down to verse 6. Jeremiah said, the, the Lord's word came to me. Your cousin Hanamel, Shalom's son, is on his way to see you. And when he arrives, he will tell you, buy my field in Anathoth. For by law, you are next in line to purchase it. And just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel showed up at the prison quarters and told me, buy my field in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for you are next in line and have a family obligation to purchase it. Then I was sure this was the Lord's doing. So I bought the field in Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, had it witnessed, and weighed out the silver on the scales. Then I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy with its terms and conditions, and the unsealed copy, and gave it to Baruch, Neriah's son, and Masiah's grandson, before my cousin Hanamel and the witnesses named in the deed, as well as before all the Judeans who were present in the prison quarters. I charge Baruch before all of them. The Lord of heavenly forces, the God of Israel, proclaims, take these documents, this sealed deed of purchase, along with the unsealed one, and put them into a clay container so they will last a long time. The Lord of heavenly forces, the God of Israel, proclaims houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. This is the word of God given to us, the people of God. We say thanks be to God. Please have a seat. So there's some fascinating things about, about this text from Jeremiah in the, in the 32nd chapter. Fascinating things. First of all, uh, we have to dive in a little bit to the, to the context of Israel during this time. Occupation. Occupation by a, by a foreign force. Occupation by uh, a, a hostile enemy. And there's this siege on Jerusalem. The first thing to note, just right off the bat, is some unusual things that happen in the first, first two verses. The first thing that, that catches the eye is an unusual dating system. Okay, the, the way that they dated this passage and, and, and how they put it in context into what was going on was unique because it mentioned Zedekiah's reign. Zedekiah was the king of Israel. Zedekiah was the one who was supposed to be in charge and the one who was, uh, uh, was in power during that time. And that was very commonplace. In many chapters of the Bible, as you read through the Old Testament, uh, it says, in the seventh year of so-and-so's reign, in the, in the 20th year of this person's reign. But in this instance, they also mention Nebuchadnezzar. Who was Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar was the leader of the Babylonian Empire. That, that because of the situation and because of what was happening, they couldn't just mention Israel's king because this was quickly vanishing. <laughs> this, was, this was going away. Instead of just naming the, the Israelite king, they, they mentioned Nebuchadnezzar's name because Judah is falling. Because Judah is going away, it's being captured. It's likely by the time that this was being recorded and written down, Judah had already fallen. And there is no succession of kings in Judah's history by which to date the occurrences going on. There's no continuity. And so they jump over to Babylon's ruler 
in order to keep time for this, for this passage. Um, Dr. Roger Hahn uh, talks a, a lot about um, these lectionary passages and, and what uh, and kind of uh, gives an overview and things that he thinks about when he's preaching from, from the lectionary. And, and one of the things he says is whenever there's a break in, in the passage, uh, go ahead and read that passage because I'm really interested in why did, why did they skip over that part. And I know you guys are too. I know sometimes when I'm preaching, you guys take the little extra time and, and read, through, uh, read through the passages. Um, and, and so let's just go there. What did we learn in, in, that, in that break? Um, what we learn is that <laughs> Jeremiah is currently incarcerated. <laughs> He's in trouble. He has, he has gotten on the bad side of King Zedekiah. Jeremiah has been imprisoned because he's rooting for the wrong team. <laughs> he's saying the wrong things. The king's saying, I don't want you to say that. And when you say that, that amounts to treason. You're saying we're going to lose. You're, you're not cheering people up. You're not giving people confidence. So you're going in jail. It, it felt, like, felt like Jeremiah and his prophecy from God was cheering for the wrong side, rooting for the other guys. When in all actuality, he was being faithful to the message that God had given him. That Judah, that Israel, because of their disobedience, was going to walk through some difficult days. And, and it's into this moment and into this, into this scene, we have Judah and we have Jerusalem and we have Babylon coming in and surrounding the city and we've got a, a prophet who's saying, eh, we haven't been all that obedient. Babylon's going to come take us over. The king doesn't like that, throws him in prison, says, stop saying those things. That's not nice. That's treason. And into this moment comes this odd instruction. Into this moment, God speaks to Jeremiah. And this time, not about the nation of Israel, not about Judah, not about Jerusalem, not about Babylon coming to take over their territory. This time, he comes with this odd instruction. God instructs, you're going to have the opportunity to buy this land in a place called Anathoth. We learn from chapter 1 that Jeremiah's from that Location. This is his hometown. Someone comes to him in prison and says, you have the chance in this moment to buy this land. And the person that would come is his cousin, Hanamel. So this is a, this is a kinsman redeemer situation. There's a provision in, in Leviticus chapter 25, if you want to go look that up later this week or even now. In Leviticus 25, God makes a provision for, for land to stay within the family, that if certain things occur, that that land is to be bought, if possible, by the family to keep that land in that tribe and with those people. And, and if, if at all possible, that, that purchase ought to be made. And sometimes it, it talks about land, and other times it, it refers to uh, the care for a family member or to pay off debts if someone has fallen on hard times. 
Many of you might remember the, the story of Boaz and Ruth, right? The, probably the most famous uh, example of this kinsman redeemer that we have the story told of in ancient Israel. Boaz becomes Ruth's redeemer. Well, Hanamel does come. He comes in that next, in that next little bit and finds Jeremiah uh, incarcerated in Jerusalem. And he says, cousin, you got to buy this land for me. I've got this great deal. It's in your hometown. You're definitely going to want this land. It's going to be great. Please purchase this land for me. You're instructed to do so. I need to cash out. Why would Hanamel want to do that? I mean, think about it. Babylon's coming. Babylon's coming. He wants out of the land. He'd really like the money. He'd like the silver. Instead of having this patch of land that, that was soon to become useless, was soon to become occupied, soon to become part of the Babylonian empire, Hanamel says, buy this land from me. <laughs> this besieged and worthless land that's belonged to our family for generations, would you buy it for me? I mean, Jerusalem and Judah are besieged. The land is, is what's going to happen with the land is unknown, and likely it's worthless, and the future seems hopeless. This is a bad real estate move, folks. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is not a wise purchase for Jeremiah to make. This is a poor investment of shekels of silver. Jeremiah, what are you doing? More interesting to me is, is the great lengths that the author and the recorder of this story, presumably Baruch, goes to mention all the people who were present. <laughs> all the people who were laughing at Jeremiah in this bad business deal. They're saying, this guy, he's a couple of french fries short of a happy meal here. This, 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 he, he's not making a wise decision. I think incarceration, I think imprisonment, is getting to him. First, he buys this worthless piece of land that will soon belong to Babylon, the superpower, which we probably will never get back. And then we're all going to be shipped out. We're going to be exiled if what he says comes true. But then he announces it all over and makes sure that lots of people know and lots of people hear and see what's going on. What's the craziest thing God's ever asked you to do? What's the craziest thing God has ever asked you to do? I think we tend to hide those things. <laughs> I think we tend to hide those things. I, I know I have that tendency that, that, that when God asks these crazy things, um, I, usually, I usually try to be obedient, yes, but I don't broadcast them. I mean, I might share with my wife on a good day, right? That's important, but... I don't make it known. I don't broadcast it. I don't, I don't shout it from the rooftops. Some things are discovered and some things are tough to conceal, but, but often we don't make a huge deal of our obedience with God, especially when he asks us to do crazy things. But prophets are kind of a different <laughs> breed of folks, and, and here Jeremiah follows that pattern. But I love the conclusion of this story, that, that here at the end he says, make Make a deed. Find the legal deed. Make a copy of that deed. Take the official one and, and seal it with a stamp that will guarantee its authenticity. 
take both copies and roll them up and, and put them in to an earthen vessel, a clay pot where they will last a long time, where they will, will be preserved. Very likely it was sealed in that pot as well and, and buried or, or tucked away in a safe and secure place. There's only one reason that Jeremiah wants to do that. Because he plans to come back. He plans to come back. That, that this prophecy that he has offered, that Judah will, will be taken over, that, that Babylon is coming and there's nothing that can be done with this bold purchase. He says, the Lord shall bring us back into this place and I will inhabit this land that God has instructed me to purchase. And he says, houses and fields and vineyards will once again be bought and sold in the land of Judah. It's one thing to say it, folks. It's another thing to act on it and say, I will buy the land, mark it down, record it for all time. For God will bring us back to this place. So many of you know... Um, I'm a bit of a, of a baseball fan, more specifically a bit of a, a Seattle Mariner fan, um, and, and I'm going to ask for just a little bit of patience. The, the kids do have um, like Seattle Mariner um, like things in their, in their packets to color today because I knew I was headed here, so I do apologize that. I'm, yes, I'm trying to indoctrinate your kids. Um, <laughs> I, I try to avoid sports metaphors, uh, but, but today I, I just couldn't resist. I, I'm really a, a Mariner fan. There's, there's a, if you want to catch up, there's a YouTube special um, called History of the Seattle Mariners, Supercut Edition. It's three hours and 40 minutes long. You'll learn everything you need to know about the Seattle Mariners. It's fantastic. It's fantastic because it's horrible. It's brutally honest about this team. Uh, and, and how bad this team has always been. How bad it has always been. There are six teams. There are six teams in Major League Baseball that have never won a World Series. There's only one team who've never been to the World Series. Yes, the Seattle Mariners. And, and although I know I shouldn't jinx it by talking about them this morning, um, they do look like they might break the longest postseason drought in North American sports pro sports this year by currently clinging to the last final wild card spot in the American League. You don't need to know all this. This is all background. Sorry about this. I want to take you back to, to a time uh, when th th was this team's highlight as a franchise, the year of 2001. In 2001, the Seattle Mariners won 116 games out of 162 game schedule in the regular season. It was tied for the most ever games won by a baseball team in a single season. That was tied with the 1906 Cubs. That's a long time ago. Um, in, in baseball, teams win a third of their games and they lose a third of the games and what they do with the rest of the games really makes up the difference between the best teams and the worst teams most of the time. But this team won 71.6% of the games they played that year. They got to the playoffs, they beat the Cleveland franchise, which is now the Guardians, took on the Yankees, 
And when they took on the Yankees, because they had the better record, they got to play two games at home, and then they were going to play three games in New York, and then play two games at home again if necessary. And, and the first team to win four, four games won, won the series and got to go to the World Series. Well, they played their two games at home, and they lost both of them. Um, and, and so the series went to New York for those three games. And, and I remember, I remember on, on King 5 News, Lou Pinella, sweet Lou, the manager of the ball club, saying, don't worry, guys, we're bringing this series back home. We'll win at least two in New York. We're going to come home. You can count on it. Well, they went to New York. They won the first game. They lost the next two. Um, and, and the Yankees got to go to the World Series. But they didn't, they didn't win which I'm not too sad about. But <laughs> when the news story broke, when the news story broke and Lou Pinella went on Seattle media and said, we're bringing the series back here. You can count on it. You can believe it. I saw this news story about a couple who in that moment went to their shed and got a tent and they went down to downtown Seattle and they pitched a tent. And they, they rolled out the sleeping bags, and they set up camp on this concrete jungle of downtown uh, Seattle and said, we're not going home. Lou Pinella said the series was going to come back, and when they come back, I want to be first in line to buy tickets to the baseball game. He said they were coming home. And I saw this news clip of this couple. They, they interviewed them after they lost the two, and they're angrily packing up their tent, putting stuff away. So Lou said he we were coming home, and he, they, didn't, they didn't come home. They were so disappointed. As I watched this King 5 clip about this disgruntled couple packing up <laughs> their tent and heading home, I was a bit in awe. I was a bit in awe. Here were the true fans. Here were the believers. Here were the ones that, that had taken vacation to, to be at the stadium, ready to swipe tickets as soon as they were available. I hadn't acted on Lou's promise to bring the series back to Seattle. I was smarter than that. But, but here they were, ready to pick up those tickets when they went on sale. I think sometimes we live in a world that feels like it's under siege. Like the enemy is all around us. And sometimes it feels like it's spinning out of control. We hear some people who seem to say the right things, but then they kind of act crazy, and others who say crazy stuff and still act like they're crazy. We feel like we should stand up and say, come on, stop, this is not right. This is not how we treat people. This is not how the body of Christ is meant to act, meant to treat one another. And so we end up feeling out of place. We feel like we're just not at home. Things feel like they're crumbling out of control. Stephen Reed reminds us, while, while the many laments of Jeremiah, like, like the one we read last week, while, while these many laments arise from disaster and call the people to contemplation, this story the story that we just read challenges exiled peoples or soon-to-be-exiled peoples to imagine what hopeful action looks like. What is your 
hopeful action. What is your hopeful action this week? As I was typing hopeful for my notes, I, my fingers did something funky and, and typed out helpful. And my, my brain said, that's not what I wanted to say. And then my brain said, yeah, that's what I wanted to say. What is your hopeful, helpful action in the midst of the siege that we find ourselves in? How will you pitch your tent at the stadium? How will you respond with this promise that the, the Lord is coming back? How will you purchase a land that appears to have no value? And how will you respond to hope that exists with little evidence? That's my question for you today. That's God's question for you today because God is still in the hope business. God is still in the hope business even when the world feels a little bit like it's falling apart and the siege is all around us. Stephen Reed finishes his thought. He says this, whatever the form, the faithful reader of Jeremiah is called to find analogies of collaborative, inspired, public, prophetic actions that speak the hope of redemption in unpromising places and times. This is how we fight back against Babylon. Babylon was too big, it was too great, it was too strong. And Jeremiah, in this one small obedient act, pushes back against the giant and says there is hope to be found. God will come through. I'm going to ask the praise team to go ahead and, and come forward and ask those that are prepared to serve communion also to come forward and, and to get prepared. One of the most poignant ways I, I, we live into the hope that God has is, is what we're about to do. This is a way of living into the hope that God has for us through this ritual of, of the Eucharist. Parallels to, to Jeremiah's purchase are, are so vivid. Here today, we reenact the sacrifice that Christ made for us. That through the symbols of bread, and juice, we say, this is the very body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which has been broken for us. As often as we do this, we remember Jesus Christ. And likewise, we take the juice and say, this is representative of, of the very blood of Jesus Christ. It was spilled out, poured out on our behalf. Every time we do this, we remember Christ and we say, we have hope in the midst of, of Babylon coming, in the midst of the siege of the place that we find ourselves in. We will not lose heart. But we will be the faithful children of God 
these symbols become for us symbols of the, the broken body and shed blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But we do that as a bold and defiant hope of his resurrection and his eventual return. Amen? And so today, as we partake in communion, I, I invite you to think that way, to say, this is my act of hope. You may have more land to purchase. You may have a, a, a tent to pitch today to say, in hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that God is calling you to do something. But I want to tell you that even in this defiant act, we say, death was not the last word, for Christ was resurrected. We celebrate that today. On the night that Christ was betrayed, he gathered with uh, his disciples uh, in what would eventually be called the upper room. And they were celebrating the Passover meal. And during that meal, he kind of enacted these, these changes. The Jews were very, very set on their rituals. They didn't change things, but Jesus did. During the meal, he took bread and he broke it, blessed it and broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. As often as you do this together, do so in remembrance of me. Likewise, after the meal, he took the cup, gave thanks for it, gave it to them saying, take and drink. This, this wine represents my blood, which is poured out, part of the new covenant for you. As often as you do this, remember me. In our church, as we celebrate communion, we're going to set up three different serving stations. Um, we have two ways of taking communion. Um, we have uh, uh, little pieces of, of gluten-free bread for those with sensitivities. If you want to extend your hand, we'll put a piece of bread in your hand, and then you can dip it in the juice. Um, if you're still, uh, if, if you feel like you would prefer, we have prepackaged elements that have a wafer and a cup, um, and you can pick one of those up and take that back to your seat and participate in communion that way. Um, but our heart is that this is what we wish to declare. Christ is our hope. Even in his sacrifice, Christ is our hope. Let us pray, and then we'll share in communion together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the chance to be called your children and to remember today that, that you are our great hope and that you call us to this place with such tenderness and yet such conviction, may our hearts respond today to the invitation to act on the hope that you bring. Thank you for this remembrance of who you are and how you served us and loved us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. After the praise team is served, the, the servers will get into place um, and then you can then you can come partake. The table is set, the invitation given. Come and dine. Jeremiah's actions in this passage make no sense. Buy the worthless land. Don't do that. Save your money. Cut your losses. Let your cousin take the hit. Bear with the risk. He can, he can do that. This is crazy. Jesus invites us with the words, not so with you. 
Not so with you. Live lives of incredible obedience. That doesn't, doesn't always make sense. Today, as we close, I'm going to offer a benediction. I invite you in this moment, as those who are willing and able, would you please stand? We have this tradition of extending out our hands as a, a physical reminder that we receive this benediction this morning. Lord, may we live in the acute awareness that you are coming again to restore all things. May our actions and our very day-to-day life reflect and illustrate that hope that we have in our lives, given by you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Go in the love of Christ. Thanks for joining us today on the Mountain Home Church the Nazarene podcast. Don't forget to visit us at mhnazarene.org connect if you'd like to connect with us. And have a great week.